back when I was in seminary, which was many years ago now, our Bible professors gave us some advice that has stuck with me all these years. They said that when it comes to Scripture, no matter how many times we've read it, no matter how familiar we are with its contents, no matter if we have studied Hebrew or Biblical Greek, no matter how many Bible studies we've been in or led, uh, no matter how well-schooled we may be in the historical contexts of the various books and letters and songs and proverbs that it contains, every one of us has what we might call our, our canon within the canon. The, the canon, C-A-N-O-N, one, one N, before the one at the end, C-A-N-O-N of Scripture, is the official list of the accepted books of the Bible. And for us Protestants, that's 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, all of which, of course, are authoritative and important to our faith formation. But every one of us reads those 66 books through the lens of what my Bible professors in seminary called our canon within the canon, which is to say each of us, whether or not we've explicitly thought of it this way, has a list of beloved passages of Scripture that help us to understand and interpret everything that we read in the Bible. And there's nothing wrong with this at all, by the way. In fact, in order to have a coherent view of what is most important in our spiritual journeys, we have to have a starting place and a guiding light. Otherwise, Scripture is just too diverse. It's, it's too contradictory in some places. It's too overwhelming. It's too multivalent or multivocal. Some might even say too chaotic to try to live our lives by. And when the Bible starts to feel overwhelming, I would actually argue that each of us needs that canon within the canon to help guide us. The point that our Bible professors tried to impress upon us as aspiring preachers and pastors is that we need to be clear about what our canon within the canon is so that we are aware of the lens through which we read the most, uh, most important collection of books in the lives of everyone who considers herself or himself to be a person of faith. Following their advice, I identified those handful of verses that uh, guide my reading of Scripture, those handful of passages that are my lens through which I interpret the whole. In the Old Testament, Micah chapter 6, verse 8 helps me to make sense of the 39 books that predate Jesus. It's a very famous passage. You may know it. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. When I read the Old Testament, Micah 6, 8 is an important guide for me. The Gospel of John gives me the greatest clarity about who Jesus is and what Jesus means for my life. All of the Gospels are important, of course, and they help shed light on Jesus' teaching and ministry, but my relationship with Jesus really is formed by John's account of Christ's life and ministry. And while all of the letters of Paul are essential in some way to the foundation of Christian theology, it is his letter to the Philippians that I find myself returning to again and again. There are several verses from this letter that, that I've committed to memory, verses that encourage and nurture me 
on my own spiritual journey. And so this weekend next, we've got uh, a little mini sermon series from Philippians beginning today uh, in the first chapter. This is Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the Apostle Paul. I thank my God every time I remember you constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So you may know this already. Uh, Paul's approach to evangelism was to go to a new town and plant a church. And after he was there for a while, he would identify potential leaders. And then at some point, he would turn over the leadership of that church uh, to these folks that he had identified. And then he would go on to the next town. He would continue to preach the gospel while maintaining relationships with his previous stops through letters. His correspondence with these churches that he had previously planted ended up becoming part of the New Testament canon. These letters, in most cases, address specific practical issues in that particular congregation, and in every case, Paul offers theology that would uh, end up becoming part of the foundation of the Christian faith. Because you see, Paul's letters predate the writing of the Gospels by decades. Paul's earliest letter and the oldest writing in the New Testament is the first letter to the Thessalonians that was written in 50 or 51 AD. The earliest gospel, which is Mark, uh, was written at least 15 years later in 66 AD. The last gospel, John, wasn't complete until in the 90s AD, and its final version may not have been completed until the first decade of the second century, all of which is to say that the writings of Paul truly form the foundation of Christian theology because they're the earliest documents that we have in the New Testament. Now, if we were in a Bible study right now, I'd point out that 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament are letters that are attributed to Paul. But the scholarly consensus at this point is that he actually wrote seven of those letters. The rest were written in his name by later students of his, which was a, a common practice in the ancient world. In case you're wondering, the seven letters that were actually written by Paul are, uh, in canonical order, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, and Philemon. The rest are what scholars call Deuteropauline. Uh, they're still authoritative, of course, because they're in the Bible, they're just not written by Paul. Since we're not in a Bible study at the moment, uh, I'll leave it at that for now. 
Now, I love Paul, and I consider my theology to be very Pauline, but if you have spent very much time with those seven authentic letters, you know that he's not always easy to get along with. (laughs) He can be a bit bossy, like when he tells Philemon that he needs to free his runaway slave Onesimus for the sake of Christ. He can be a bit hot-tempered, which is very clear when you read Galatians in the original Greek. The translations into English uh, tend to tone down his sometimes salty language. He can be direct, as he is with the Corinthians, who, in his defense, seem to be kind of a hot mess. He can be a bit presumptuous, like in his masterpiece letter to the Romans, which is written to a church that he's never even visited before, giving advice to a bunch of Christians he's never met. And he's always super opinionated, which I'm sure is part of the reason that I find him so endearing. (laughs) It's because I can relate. But in his letter to the Philippians, we get uh, a glimpse, I think, into the heart and soul of a pastor who loves the church, despite its imperfections and challenges. Paul had planted the church at Philippi in the year 50 or 51 AD, right around the same time he wrote the first letter to the Thessalonians. Philippi was a a major Roman city, and this was the first church that Paul planted in Europe. And we read that he is writing from prison, the location of which is unknown because he does not specify. And he's writing sometime in the, the late 50s or the early 60s, which means that the church at Philippi had been in existence for perhaps as much as a decade at the time of the writing of this letter. And it's clear from the beginning that Paul feels a great deal of affection for them. It's different in tone than some of his other letters. He uses this beautiful phrase, I long for all of you with the compassion of Jesus Christ. And we're going to come back to that word in a little bit. I long for all of you with the compassion of Jesus Christ. He actually says Christ Jesus. And then he says, this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more. And then a little later in that chapter, he uses a phrase that's become kind of a mantra for me, one of those canon within the canon verses that guides my own spiritual journey. So we'll jump down to verse 27 and read that now. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Amen. Uh, To say that I am a creature of habit would be a gross understatement. For as long as I've been a a pastor, I've had a very structured daily prayer routine. I've got an app on my phone called Prayer Notes, which I would recommend. It's a good app uh, with prayer requests that are broken down by category. And one of my prayers every day is inspired by our passage this morning, and specifically that verse we just read. Uh, Every day I lift up uh, gratitude, thanking God for calling me to ordained ministry, thanking God for sending our family here to Christ United. And in that same petition, I pray that I might live my life that day in a manner worthy of the gospel. Not because 
I feel like I have to earn the grace of God. That would be impossible, first of all. And second of all, if I had to, it wouldn't be grace. That's the whole point of grace. But rather, it's because I I say that prayer because in response to God's grace, I want to live my life in this community to reflect God's will for our life together. I want to live my life today in a way that honors what God desires for the community of faith, specifically in this place. I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus, Paul writes. This is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more. That's what it looks like to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. In a congregation as large as ours, there are lots of differences among us, right? Uh, Differences of age and gender, of course. Differences of background and socioeconomics. Differences of ethnicity and differences of life stage. Differences of political perspective. uh, And probably, to a lesser extent, theological perspective. Differences of opinion on, on just about any subject you can think of. But we all share our common identity in Christ, which transcends whatever differences there are among us. And here, there's a detail in Philippians that we just miss in translation. The NRSV says, the the version I read, the New Revised Standard Version says, I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. But instead of compassion, the Greek word that Paul uses there is the the word for our inmost self, like our innards. (laughs) Like he literally writes, I long for all of you with the innards of Christ Jesus. And I understand why we don't translate it that way. That doesn't sound very good. But that's because in the Hebrew uh, tradition, our inmost self, like our our, our innards, uh, our inmost self was the source of our tenderest affections. It's a metaphor that he's using. So yes, Paul is indeed talking about compassion. It's not an incorrect word to use in that spot. It's just, it's just incomplete because he means more than compassion. He's talking about feelings of kindness and benevolence and love that, comes from the, that come from the absolute depths of who we are. Paul is saying that our community as disciples of Jesus connects us in a profound way and that living our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel includes the kind of affection and love that we don't get, for example, uh, at work typically or at school or on our sports teams or in other civic or social groups because our life in the community of faith is grounded in our love for Christ and in his love for us. It makes it fundamentally different than the connections we have anyplace else. And you know, I think that on Sunday, March 8th, 2020, it was easy for us to take that connection for granted. I know I did, and I've been living and working in the church for a long time. But then the next Sunday, March 15th, 2020, when we could not physically gather in community, we began to learn and be reminded of how important that connection is. 
Over the past 16 months, we've all yearned for that connection that we used to take for granted, for that, that compassion in the deepest sense that Paul originally intended it. And now that things are returning to pre-COVID normal, I think we're all acutely aware of just how much that profound sense of community means to every one of us. Over the past few months, uh, literally every Sunday here in church, we see here on campus uh, people who are coming back for the first time since March 8th, 2020. And without fail, without fail, the sense of joy and connection is obvious. Along with expressions of gratitude for that love and kindness and affection that is ours in a unique way as part of a community of faith. For those, of, those who have uh, only been able to connect online since the pandemic began, there certainly is a sense of community. There's no doubt about that. But being in fellowship in person with the community of faith is something else entirely. Paul was writing to the Philippians from the isolation of prison, thanking God for what the community of faith gives each one of us as we return from a, a different kind of isolation, we too give thanks to God for the, the community, the compassion, the connection, the kindness, the affection that we find in this place. I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus, Paul writes. This is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more that's what it looks like to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. May it be so. Amen.